Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi, I'm Rob Wolf, your host for New Books in Science Fiction, and with me today is Ada Palmer. She is a cultural and intellectual historian at the University of Chicago. She's also a composer and a musician. Uh, But most importantly for me today, she is the author of the debut science fiction novel, Two Like the Lightning. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. I think it's absolutely fascinating that you're both a historian and a writer of science fiction. And, you you know, you specialize in the Italian Renaissance, I understand, which was about 500 years ago or so. And yes, and and you set your novel about 500 years in the future. I set it about the same distance in the future because I'm very familiar with how much a world has changed in that amount of time, how many different cultural movements there have been, how many different political forms things have taken, how many different times the family unit has changed size and so on. So I was interested in exploring not a moment in the future, but the future chronology that gets to that as well. You know, in some sense, there's nothing more similar to the future than the past. (laughs) So as a historian, I spend my time looking at how Earth changes, and therefore I used my knowledge of how it's changed in the past to extrapolate how it would change in the future. That makes a lot of sense. What also comes to mind for me is that as a historian, when you're looking to the past, you're really rooted in the facts and things that actually happened. And as you look to the future, you're freed of the constraints of a researcher, and you can turn inward and use your imagination, which I imagine is a very different intellectual muscle that you're using. (laughs) It's a different intellectual muscle in some sense, but a lot of it comes from Asking the questions a historian asks, but asking it of the future instead of of the past. Because when I'm looking at a different point in time, especially if I'm talking to a different historian who works on a different point in time, I always want to ask things like, how do patron-client relationships work? What are the currencies and why? Um, How are the family structures set up in order to balance how the economy does division of labor? These sorts of questions that any historian can answer about the particular time and place or a couple of times and places that that historian specializes in. And so I needed to be able to answer those questions for my future in order to be satisfied with it in the same way. Although when you answer them, you're you're coming from your own imagination, although I suppose also drawing on extrapolations of, of the world as you know it or as it existed in the past. Exactly. and And looking at how things have changed in the last few centuries and therefore predicting how those big changes might continue flowing forward. Not precise small details, but things like the speed of transit has been increasing. And it's not plausible to me that the speed of transit won't increase a bit more in future, which will make a more interconnected society. That's a sort of easy guess to make. So then the question is to say, okay, there's going to be some kind of increased interconnectivity and increased speed of transit. I just have to decide how much and then work on a world that reflects that. That's just one example. 
Well, why don't you describe the world of Two Like the Lightning and how it came about in your future history? You mean sort of the chronological events that led to it? Well, just to give listeners a sense, most of whom haven't yet read the book, uh, just to give them a little insight into maybe you want to tie it to how your work as a historian has informed the world that you've created, how, how you've built on some of the ideas of the Enlightenment to create the world of, of two like the lightning. So there are a couple of different angles to come at that from, and I'll do the uh, s- historical snapshot of the, this moment first and then the Enlightenment angle that you're hinting at second. Uh, this is taking place in a 25th century in which there's a network of flying cars that are so fast that you can get from anywhere on Earth to anywhere else on Earth in about two hours. This brings the whole planet within effective commuting distance. So it's perfectly logistically straightforward to live in the Bahamas, work in Tokyo, have lunch in Paris, while a family member also lives in the Bahamas but works in Antarctica and, you know, has lunch uh, in in Seoul. Uh, With that kind of interconnectivity, the whole globe in some sense collapses into the cultural equivalent of a city and its suburbs in terms of how easy it is for everything to reach everything else, which means that cultures and language groups and ethnic groups now differentiate themselves the way a Chinatown or a Japantown or a Little India or a Greek town differentiate themselves within a city populace. That is not by not having very much contact with people of other groups, but by clustering, having a lot to do with each other and intentionally and systematically passing on cultural continuity. Uh, So that in a sense, it's a world of diaspora in which all the different groups live all over the world and mix with each other and pass on their cultures with more intentionality uh, in order to protect them. And, of course, with, consequently, a lot more blending and a lot more people who uh, have become mixed and sort of don't care very much about their um, ancestral roots and, and are part of a sort of blurry melting pot culture, while other people care very deeply about their cultural roots. Um, this system also has led to non-geographic nations, since if you can imagine a couple generations into being able to live anywhere and work anywhere, a lot of people would live in the most beautiful places regardless of where they have citizenship and work in different countries where there are jobs regardless of citizenship. So there are non-geographic nations in which you choose the nation you want to be a part of because you feel you have strong ties to that nation. Personally and culturally, you care about its ideology or its or your ancestry is linked to it. The European Union is still there. Um, uh, but you live wherever you want in the world. And then you uh, have people all around you who are members of all of the different groups. And you're governed by your law. And your law determines what it's legal for you to do and not do. Whereas the people living next door may be governed by a different law. This is exactly how emigrate populations live already. It's just a extrapolation of that to become the norm instead of the exception. Uh, You hinted at the Enlightenment being a big part of it, and one thing that's happening in this future, and here is also where my work as a Renaissance historian comes in, lots of historical movements, and especially big moments of historical change throughout Earth's history, have happened with a revival of something from the past. So the Renaissance was this big revival of classical Greek and Roman culture. And it was revived by people in the Renaissance for their own reasons, which were deeply political and had huge military consequences as well as cultural ones, and they did it for their own reasons, but it was the tool of antiquity that they did it with. 
So my 25th century is having a revival of 18th century culture, and they're using that 18th century culture in their own weird ways for their own weird purposes, which are not what 18th century people would have done with it, but are what 25th century people are doing with it. So there's this layering of looking at the 18th century as being repurposed by the 25th century. And you've written the book in a style that is reminiscent of of 18th century Enlightenment writers. Yes, and the the beginning, the narrator says that the things that he is going to describe can only be described in the language of the Enlightenment. And then the reader has to decide over time, okay, I'll be patient and see whether this turns out to be so, and kind of judge the narrator and whether the narrator was right or wrong to use this weird style. Um, But the narrator, of course, is writing, assuming that you're reading it in the 25th century. So when he apologizes for writing in an 18th century style, for example, he says, forgive me my these and thous and he's and she's. Because in the 25th century, both the and thou and he and she are antiquated and not used anymore. So as the real 20th century or 21st century, in our case, readers reading this, you have this double layering of figuring out what a 25th century person is trying to do imitating uh, a past historical style. Well, it's interesting that you uh, eliminated gender, or at least you changed the rules around uh, distinguishing gender, at least linguistically, that mm-hmm. you know, it's banned to, as you say, use he and she. And I found that interesting because I thought today, you know, as a reflection on today, people are struggling with when to use he or she or when to use they as a singular. And I wondered if there was any light that the future world, or Mycroft Canner, who's the narrator, if he mm-hmm. could he could share with us some wisdom about how to go about navigating a language that's uh, shorn of gender. I mean, it's an interesting challenge, and the narrator will frequently come to scenes and say, you know, this scene would make no sense, reader, if I weren't using he and she, because the gendered subtext of the interaction between the two people in this scene in the narrator's opinion, is the only way to understand why they're behaving the way they do. But the narrator does not apply he and she to people based on their uh, biology or anatomy or even based on their preference. The narrator is assigning he and she based on the narrator's opinions of whether people's personalities are in the narrator's head masculine or feminine is a really weird way to apply it. So as the reader, you know it's being applied in a non-gender determinist way, in a personality-based way. And then you have to figure out what the narrator means by doing this. I found it very interesting writing it, because the the challenge is that the narrator uses he and she in the narration, but the characters, when speaking, use the singular they, and do not use he and she, except in very peculiar ways. Circumstances. So I, as the writer, had to oscillate back and forth, making my dialogue be consistently genderless and my narration be consistently gendered, uh, which is a very easy thing to mess up. It also means that when you go back to writing your email, you have this ingrained habit of using they instead of ENG, which makes your email very surreal if you've just been writing all day. Um, I'm, I'm sure. Did you have note? Did you have a little uh, reminder cards above your uh, your desk to remind you to switch? <laughs> Switch modes, pronoun mode. It's funny. But, but uh, the reason I'm excited by doing this in the book is that it pushes how much is being communicated by he and she. Uh, 
Um, because we at least think that when we use he and she in a daily conversation, it isn't very important to us most of the time whether a person is male or female. We consider these things equal and we respect these things equally. And a lot of people use them without thinking very consciously about it. The narrator of the, the book is arguing that there is a lot of weight in he and she and that they are deeply significant. It's up to the reader to then decide whether uh, this is true, whether this is false, how it feels to read uh, language stripped of gender or how it feels to read language where gender is being accentuated the way the uh, narrator intentionally accentuates it. I'm curious, did you start down this path and exploring these issues before? I imagine you did, actually, because it just seems in the last year or two, there's just been this explosion of interest in, you know, what's the best signage for bathrooms? You know, what are the rules around not just language, but... Yeah, I finished the first draft of this in 2008. So conversations about gender, about uh, trans people, about all sorts of things are in a very different space from where they were when I first finished. And in fact, the singular they is much more common now. I remember two years ago, I think it was, when Wikipedia made a Wikipedia article about the singular they. And it was this big moment of recognition of it as a linguistic development. And lots of friends emailed me to be like, Ada, they're using the singular they in Wikipedia now. And um, I, I think, so. and I could be wrong, I think the Washington Post, too, has accepted it as a stylistically... Mm-hmm you know, uh, appropriate in certain yeah. situations. Which meant when, when I first had people test reading the book, they found it really weird reading the dialogue that used a singular lay. But people who are reading it now, even though it's only a few years later, are finding it a much more comfortable thing. My goal in looking at this was trying to portray a society that sincerely believes that it is post-gender because it's gotten rid of the pronouns and because it's largely gotten rid of gendered clothing, but that didn't finish following through looking at gender and especially sexism sort of all the way down into the tiny details of how we unconsciously pass it on. You know, how when, uh, when little kids are roughhousing, We criticize little kids we perceive as female slightly more than little kids we perceive as male because we think of roughhousing as being natural to boys. And we don't necessarily even notice that we do this, but we learned to do this unconsciously when we were kids and we pass it on. And so this society has been continuing to unconsciously pass on bits of gender and especially sexism, not because I think this is natural to humanity and we can never get rid of it, but because this is a particular future that didn't do a good job sort of finishing the end game of feminism and gender equality, that erased it too fast, stopped the conversation, and consequently still has tons of baggage, even several centuries into believing that it's a gender-neutral society. Uh, So I wanted to look at what happens when you have surface gender neutrality, fake gender neutrality, when the society hasn't really come all the way through digesting gender and figuring out a healthy way to cope with it. Well, you also take a similar approach to religion, although I wonder if you think that the society you present uh, has done a better job of it, because in in your world building, 
I, I may misstate it, so you can correct me, but basically religion has been banned based on past uh, history and past conflicts. And I wonder if you feel like they have actually done a better job of uh, addressing religion than perhaps they have eliminating gender distinctions. I mean, to some extent, yes, and some extent, no. The, the banning of religion is one of the things about this future that's meant to be very alarming, uh, similarly to the fact that this is a future that has a lot of censorship, which should be very alarming to the reader coming in. Uh, this future has banned organized religion, but encourages and in some extent requires individual solitary practice of religion. There's a profession which is a sensayer, which is sort of part part um, personal therapist, part priest, whose job it is to have periodic, you know, every other week sessions with people where they talk about religious views. And the sensayer is required by law to be religiously neutral, uh, to not let the parishioner know what that uh, sensayer's actual theological beliefs are, but just to be an interlocutor to help the individual come up with their own religious beliefs. So everyone is supposed to have spiritual discourse, a spiritual counselor, and a spiritual life, whether that person is a theist or an atheist or a Muslim or a Catholic or a Buddhist. Uh, everybody is supposed to study all of these different religions, decide whether to believe in any of them, have this as a meaningful part of their life. But it's absolutely forbidden to talk about it outside the circumscribed confines of the one-on-one sensayer session. It's a world that's really scared of religion but thinks that people need to have it. Again, it's intended kind of like the religious one to be an uncomfortable thing. And you say, well, this is not a future that handled religion in a way that really worked out best for everybody or especially best for liberty and liberty of discourse. Uh, It's a little more functional in some sense on the religion front because at least they are talking about it. Whereas with gender, they're not even talking about it. Um, But it's intended to be... A solution that society has come to about religion, which is good in some ways and problematic in others. Uh, And you learn very quickly in the first book that this was developed in reaction to the church war, uh, which people talk about having been a world war scale war that happened in the 22nd century. Well, I find it interesting that the Enlightenment, although I'm no historian, so you can probably fine-tune my understanding here, Mm -hmm. but that the Enlightenment uh, offered a different way to look at the world without necessarily uh, using religion as your lens. And uh, and yet I find it, even though that was 500 or so years ago, the world of today is still deeply mired in in religion. And I found it encouraging, even though it's not a perfect solution, that there had been a major shift in 500 mm-hmm. years in your vision where <laughs> spiritual needs were being addressed, but there was an effort to at least eliminate ostensibly the divisiveness that comes from religious difference, or at least the way we manage it today. There's, it certainly can be very divisive. It's true that the Enlightenment is the sort of first great flourishing point of atheistic discourse. Uh, You had the Earl of Rochester in the late 17th century, but it's in the 18th century that you have really robust atheist texts being written by people like Diderot and La Maitrie and the Marquis de Sade and so on. But uh, the vast majority of the major thinkers that we look at from the Enlightenment are theists, but a lot of them are deists. They're sort of a anti-religion of the book, pro-religion of nature, but thinking that everybody should have religion. If you look, for example, even at Thomas Paine, who's a wild religious radical, Thomas Paine, when setting up 
the U.S. educational system wanted religion to be mandatory in schools, but for it to be completely up to people which religion it was, that it could be any religion, it could be Islam, it could be whatever, but there had to be some religion because he thought atheists would never be good citizens because they wouldn't fear God and therefore wouldn't be um, religiously reliable. Uh, so one of the things that the, this book looks at is this this atmosphere that was going on in the Enlightenment where there's a lot of pro-religion but anti-organized religion feeling, um, reflecting ideas like those of Thomas Paine. Uh, although the society that I'm imagining is much more open to atheists also being a happy, cohesive part of it than uh, Thomas Paine's version of uh, early America would have been. I love 18th century philosophical novels and speculative fiction, some of which is even science fiction. I mean, Voltaire wrote Micromegas, which is a short story where aliens come to come to the earth and talk to humans. But uh, when his aliens come to earth and talk to humans, the first thing they talk about is whether or not science can prove the existence of God and whether Descartes or Aquinas are correct about the nature of the soul, which is not what our aliens talk to humans about when our aliens come to earth. And I, read Micromegas and I was really excited by the idea of let's write a kind of science fiction where we're having the same kinds of encounters and challenges like robots and aliens at first contact type questions. But the direction that they lead to are philosophy, humanism, uh, what we can know about the nature of the universe, metaphysics, instead of technology, heroism, uh, and much more traditional science fiction questions, if you see what I mean. Absolutely, and I think you embody those discussions uh, throughout the book. I mean, there's a lot of conversations going on among the characters about these metaphysical issues. Maybe you could talk a little bit about the seven families that are uh, sort of the governing families of this of this world, because each one represents a different way of, of looking at the world, uh, don't they? You mean the hives? The hives, right. Yeah. I mean, I guess, yes, I translated my mind to families. Yeah, these are the big non-geographic nations that people in this world can sign up to be citizens of. Uh, in this world, uh, there are basic laws uh, in, that are that are the universal laws. They're called the universal laws, which are uh, implemented by uh, an alliance of the whole world or most of the world, um, located in a world capital called Romanova. When you're born and when you're a kid, you're automatically protected by minors' law uh, until you decide you want to be an adult and you take the adulthood competency exam. Uh, and then you become an adult, and you can do that at whatever age you feel ready for it. Uh, so some people do it in their early teen years, and some people do it in their 20s. And when you've come of age, you then get to decide which of these big geographic nations you want to join. Uh, the easiest one to describe is the European Union, which is still there and is a descendant of the current European Union. And people uh, in this world tend to join the European Union when their own uh, personal national identity and uh, ancestral identity is very important to them because the European Union is still run as it is now with representatives from its different member nations. So people who think, you know, I'm Greek and it's really important to me that I'm Greek or that I'm French uh, or that I'm German. And so I want to be governed by a government where my nation has representatives and, and my nationality is part of it. Those people tend to join the European Union. Only this futuristic European Union also com 
contains a lot of other countries. So Canada is in the European Union, and the Philippines are in the European Union, and Madagascar is in the European Union. Uh, and people from those places who consider their national identity important are part of that. And is, wait, um, I'm curious, is Great Britain still part of the, do they rejoin again after, after having? After Brexit, I had fun going back through the books and, and, and confirmed that at no point did I ever specify whether uh, whether Britain is in. Actually, uh, this is not specified in the books, but the English, Scottish, Welsh, and two different rival Irish nation strats are all uh, in the European Union. However, you don't have to be in the European Union to be a member of them. So you can be French and a member of the French nation group and actually vote for France's representatives in the European Union without being a member of the European Union. You can do that with other ones. Uh, it's one of the fun peculiarities of it. So to describe a couple of the other hives, um, there's a group called the uh, Humanists. Their big thing is sort of human excellence um, outstandingness competition. Uh, they care a lot about athletes, uh, superstars, singers, celebrities, people who tend to join the humanists are people who like to push themselves and strive and consider themselves to be uh, pushing some edge of themselves and achieving human greatness. Uh, they evolved out of what had just been a transportation group run by the Olympics to help people uh, hop in flying cars from continent to continent to go see the Olympics and see sports matches. And over time, they came to be one of these groups. Another group is the Mitsubishi group, evolved out of the present-day Mitsubishi uh, group mega corporation. That is the group that has come to have most of the people who are of East Asian ancestry and consider their East Asian-ness to be very important to their identity and especially the uh, uh, some of the defining characteristics that are shared by some East Asian nations focusing on land, nature, the beauty of landscape, uh, the importance of the relationship with the land in a way that's different from the Western one. Uh, so many Chinese, Korean, uh, Japanese, Philippine, and uh, also people from India tend to be in that group, although the India bloc joined it later. Another group is called the Cousins. They evolved out of a group that had been, at first, a travel group for women who would sign up. And then if you were traveling to an unfamiliar place where you didn't know anyone, uh, another woman in the group would volunteer to act as your cousin and come meet you in the place and show you around and give you a sofa for the night. Uh, and then gradually over time, it came to be where people cluster who tended to care a lot about hospitality, nurturing, giving. It's where a lot of the nurses and school teachers are. They run the hospitals and the orphanages and very friendly, very popular, really big uh, hive. Let's see. There's another one called Gordian, whose members are also called Brillists. Uh, they evolved out of an old corpor corporation, but their shtick is that they all do this very interesting kind of uh, psychotaxonomy in which they figure out other people's personalities and their own on a very elaborate scale invented by this psychologist called Adolf Richter Brill uh, in the 21st century. And, uh, and so they're really good at predicting human behavior and interested in neuroscience and neural research. Well, now, how did you go about creating such a complex world? I mean, it's it's evident in your writing uh, and in our conversation that you understand this world so well. What's your process? Do you is it are, are you writing and exploring as you go? Do you meditate on everything before you put it on paper? I spent five years working on the world building before I sat down to outline the book. 
so that I really, really knew this world inside out. And similarly, as I'm writing this series, I'm already doing the world building, uh, the pre, pre-writing world building for the next series that I want to work on after this one. So I like to world build very robustly over a long time, which involves mulling on things. You know, I'll, I'll be watching television and, and a, a topic will come up involving currency and I'll think, hmm, I have to decide how the currency works. And just accumulating over many years, it'll then... And how do you access that information? Do you create a glossary for yourself? Is it in a computer file? And you can search for the words going, now, I did create a currency, but I did that two years ago, and I don't remember, actually, the denominations of the currency. So let me look that up. I I remember everything pretty perfectly except for dates. So I have a very detailed timeline uh, in which I have at what point each social institution or event or person lived or, or happened. I also have a very detailed map uh, in which I have hundreds of I have a it's an online Google private Google map in which I have hundreds of pins in it uh, with notes to myself of what every city with a population over 10 million is like in this future. Uh, every major country or region that doesn't have a city that big but nonetheless has a distinct cultural identity, I'll have notes to myself about what they're up to uh, so that the geography and the time I keep track of in a timeline and a map, but everything else I keep in my head. And how do you balance your other interests? I mean, this is obviously a a tremendous project, Yes, uh, but you're also a historian. You were just uh, describing to me before we began the interview formally that you have been both promoting the book in the last couple months, but also traveling to Italy to do research for your academic studies. And then I also know you're a composer. So I'm just curious how, I mean, in a, in a sense, you're a Renaissance person. <laughs> and I just wonder how it's a question that comes from admiration. You know, how do you integrate um, all those things and feed feed all those things. (laughs) Well, each project is in a sense a break from all the other projects. And when I've been working on one and then go to the other, it's newly refreshing and exciting again. Uh, So that way I'll have a very long working day where I, you know, get up at seven 30 and I'm usually working until bedtime, but it'll feel like I finished a big chunk of work on one thing and then switch excitedly to the another as my treat uh, finishing the first one. Wow, you really integrate. It's not like you work for three months on, you know, a history project and then three months on a novel. You you integrate. No, I'll, do, it. I'll do a chapter of novel in the in the morning, and then I'll do some preparation for teaching work in midday, and then I'll do some work on an article in the afternoon, and then uh, after dinner I'll do work on a blog post or something else that's due. Fantastic. Yeah. I mean, sometimes it doesn't work that way. Sometimes there's a deadline that means you have to work on one thing solidly. So I just did the copy edit of the second novel in the series, Seven Surrenders. And uh, so for that, I was doing pretty much no other work for the few days that I was concentrating on that. But before that, uh, I guess before that was travel. But before that, there were three weeks where I was just working on an article for Renaissance Quarterly about the influence of humanist editing practices on the development of deism in the Enlightenment. So uh, uh, sometimes it'll be one project at a time. But I really enjoy switching from project to project at lunchtime so that I'm doing one in the morning and the other in the afternoon. So do you want to say anything about Seven Surrenders? And I mean, this is a trilogy. Is that a planned trilogy? Four books. Four books. Uh Uh-huh. Okay. So 
Seven Surrenders is the second one. Yes. Uh, any, anything you want to say about that? The first two fit very, very closely together. Uh, so that when you finish the first one, you immediately demand the second one. There's no, there's no better way to put it. I don't know whether to call it a cliffhanger or whether to just say it. Uh, you, you, you really want the second one when you finish the first one. Uh, but the second one is much more complete. So that in a sense, those two fit very closely together. As the beginning puts it, the two are the, the two halves of a history being written by Mycroft Canner at a certain point. And the, the other two books have a different relationship to what's going on. But, how else does one describe it? All right, so there's a lot going on in these books. There's religion, there's culture, there's drama, there's romance, there's you know, criminal stuff. But a, I would say 15% of what's going on is a whodunit. Uh, there's a mystery that's introduced at the beginning of the first one. And it's a weird way to structure the whodunit, but pretty much all of book one is coming to fully understand what the it is that somebody has done because it ties in so intricately to the political balance of the world that it's not until you've gotten a good dose of this and understand the real structure of who's in power and why and where they got their power from and how they're what the weaknesses are and what the strengths are in the political system that you fully understand the impact of what's happened uh, so it's sort of a two-part whodunit in which the first part is it and the second part gives you the resolution of that. But even the process of coming to understand just what has been done uh, is the very engaging spine of the first book that then brings you to its climax. And at the end of the book one, you finally really understand exactly what's happened. And tell me a little bit about the journey to publication. Was it, uh, was it a rough road or was it, has it been smooth sailing? It felt like forever. <laughs> uh, it, was, it, was, it was a long wait. Um, it was a long wait, and it wasn't – actually, I've written an essay about this, which is in a really awesome book. I don't know if you've run across it called The Usual Path to Publication. Yeah, I did. I actually saw it uh, today. Uh, yeah. I mean, I saw yeah. it when I was researching uh, your background. Oh, yes. Well, this is a really neat book collection where they've had – I think it's 23, 22 different authors write an essay about how that author sold the first novel. Uh, the goal of which being to demonstrate that they're all completely different and that there is no usual path. But I really loved writing that essay and I really am proud of it. So you know, go find that book and read that essay. And a lot of the others are really fascinating. It's a great portrait of the publishing world. And I'm, of course, a publishing geek. Being a book historian, I geek out about publishing details then as now. Uh, but it, in effect, it was a very long wait. You know, I, I had the ideas for the book as early as 2000. Two, uh, and I finished it in 2008, and then it took from then until now for for me to continue writing the next one, polishing up, sending it to places. But a lot of science fiction publishers are just very, very slow, both in response and in production. And as you know, I published it with Tor, and Tor is sort of infamous for being the slowest <laughs> in a lot of ways. Wonderful in many, many others. Uh, I love being with Tor, and I love working with Tor, but they are very, very slow. I mean, I guess it's much faster than it used to be when people hand-painted, uh, <laughs> you know, illuminated books that yeah, spent a lifetime doing that, I suppose. Yeah. So. But then you look at things like, you know, Luther's 95 Theses were in print in London in 17 days after he finished them. And that is a fast publication turnaround time for 1517. Um, wow. So, 
some things get faster, but some things don't. I mean, the the reason these publishers are slow really is this question of how many staff they can have reading and responding. Uh, the publishing world is not a very lucrative one, and so they really are working on tight budgets and can't have as much staff as they would like. Is the centerpiece. Uh, you know, if we if 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 the book uh, if the books earned them more money, they would hire more help, and then they would answer things faster. Thank you so much. I know you you have a very busy schedule, so <laughs> I appreciate the time you've taken to share with me and uh, our listeners your thoughts and your ideas and and the story of Two Like the Lightning. <laughs> yes, I, it's. It's very much all world, I think. I mean, there is a very central story going on in it, but uh, especially people who've been responding to book one alone, I've been, I've been amazed by how excited the reviews have been about the world. That said, I was really nervous about the release of the first book because I feel like everything great is in the second book. <laughs> Uh, and so I was really happy to know that people really liked the first book because it feels like the first book for me is sort of all set up and the second book is all payoff. Uh, and so if people already like the first book, then they're going to really love the second book because it's so much better. And did you decide from the beginning, was it just because it was just too big and you, dev- you yeah. cut it, decided to cut it in half? Otherwise, you would have put it together as in one? or I mean, uh, having it all as one would be nice, but it's impossibly too big to be a book, if you see what I mean. I, I, so the, the four chunks of, of about co-equal size are, are, are the plan. Well, something to look forward to. So <laughs> yes. That's excellent. Yeah. Well, thank you very much for having me, though. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. And uh, I've been speaking with Ada Palmer, who is a historian. Uh, She's also a musician, and she is also the author of Two Like the Lightning out this year from Tor. So everyone should go out and get it so they're ready to get the sequel, which will be out. That'll be later this year, right? Actually, it's been delayed. It was going to be December, but now it's going to be February. Apparently, there was so much unexpected buzz and excitement about the first book that Barnes & Noble asked Tor to delay the second one so they can rush out a paperback first. Uh, so I'm told that that's good and that it's the best possible reason for it to be delayed because it's been delayed because too many people like it, uh, paradoxical as that seems. Fantastic. Yeah, what great news. All right, so people have more time, but still, don't don't wait. Go out and get your copy so you're all set for February when Seven Surrenders comes out. Cool. I'm Rob Wolf. I am the host of New Books in Science Fiction. You can find our Twitter feed at New Books Sci-Fi. We also have a Facebook page. You can follow me on Twitter at Rob Wolf Books. You could look for my books, The Alternate Universe and The Escape. The editor of the New Books Network is Marshall Poe. The composer of our music is Michael Aaron. And the guy who made our logo is Michael Thibodeau. So thanks to everyone who listens. Thanks to all the people who make the podcast possible. And you'll hear from me soon.